Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast exploring the ways that people draw on their life experiences to support others, innovate, and advocate for change. I'm Donna Mosh, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Association for Mental Health. I Live This is a co-production of both MAMH and Kiva Centers. There's power in our experiences. They color our lives and how we interact with others. It's our hope that through these conversations, we can elevate individual voices and provide insight on the value of shared moments. We think you'll find that each of our experiences can drive change and foster connection, ultimately transforming the way we look at mental health. Stay with us for today's conversation coming up next. And don't forget to stick around after the interview for details on where to get related resources and more information. Hi, I'm Cassie Kramer, Project Manager for the Older Adult Behavioral Health Network at MAMH. You're listening to I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection. I'm excited about today's interview because our guest is an internationally recognized expert on supports for hoarding conditions although he may not use those words to describe his experience or his work. Lee Schuer is co-founder of Mutual Support Consulting, a certified peer specialist and co-author of the Buried in Treasures Workshop Facilitator Guide and Wrap for Reducing Clutter. He's been at the forefront of developing self-help groups for people in recovery from hoarding and education for professionals working to help them. We'll talk more about Lee's personal experience and work in today's conversation. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Oh, my pleasure. So you've been a peer specialist for a long time. I think I met you at the Transformation Center um, meeting in 2006. Can you share a little bit about how you first got involved in the peer community? Sure. Yeah, that that was a while ago now. And I actually, I do remember that meeting. It was part of sort of a, a jarring sort of lurch forward into the movement. I didn't really start out in the shallow end. I just kind of jumped in with both feet. Um, so I was working at a traditional mental health provider and I had a, a roommate that said, you know, I was looking for work in 2000. He's like, well, you know, you like people. And uh, I got a friend that works at this organization and they just like take people out to the movies and stuff like that. So you should apply. So I applied and I got the job. It turned out to be a lot more than that. But I was told if you can write a complete sentence, you'll go full time with this job. The bar was incredibly low for hiring and for one of the most sophisticated jobs that carries some of the most, you know, significant responsibility. It's really staggering to look back at how easy it was to get hired and how much responsibility was given to me all at once. And so I have a background in forestry and English. Uh, but lived experience with mental health challenges that goes back years before I, I started. But I knew that you weren't like, quote unquote, supposed to self-disclose your lived experience in the mental health field. But I didn't realize what an impact that would have on me trying to sort of keep something secret on the job because I didn't think I could talk about it, keeping the job secret at home because of confidentiality, and then having all these things and not really talking to anybody about it. And by 2003, I realized that it was just limiting the quality of work I was doing that I felt I should 
uh, start to, to share some of that experience. And I told my team that I had a diagnosis and I felt like it would be helpful to share it. Uh, the team was kind of split down the middle in terms of whether or not I should, but I guess the tie-breaking vote was cast by my supervisor at the time, Sarah Davidow, who went on to, you know, who's now a, at the lead of the pack in terms of advocating for peer supports in Massachusetts and beyond. And uh, so, yeah, when the opportunity came up, I shared. It didn't go as planned. Uh, it was totally underwhelming, the response from the participant, uh, which is fine. But for me, it was a, a life-changing moment. And at first, I almost lost my job because of sharing. And within a couple of years, actually, that became my job uh, through really positive persistence. And so you met me about a year after I went part-time, at least, with the peer specialist work. And yeah, in, in those early days, it was really really tough you know there I, I just always felt like I was at risk of losing my my job uh, but it was sort of meeting other peers in the system that gave me some a sense of the bigger picture and that I wasn't alone in it yeah you're internationally known for your pioneering work on decluttering and support for quote unquote hoarding how did you begin doing this work so this was something that my partner at the time Becca told me I really needed to get help. Um, 2005, we'd been married for a year. And when we moved into our studio apartment, it was clear when everything came with us and then filled a storage unit and other spaces that I had too much stuff. And she found a study that was going on locally for people who had too much stuff. And I, I accepted the help. And at the time, I was asked to basically let go of one item and I let a, a sentimental shirt go. And I didn't let another item go for like four years because there wasn't any follow-up help. Um, I came into the field by accident, I guess. So there was that early introduction, but I joined the Western Mass HD Resource Network in 2007 at the invitation of a coworker. He was leaving the, the group and just thought I might uh, appreciate participating not as a clutterer, but as somebody who's just, I like to be involved. I didn't tell anybody in the group that I have clutter stuff. Uh, there's so much stigma. I was worried that they wouldn't like feel comfortable talking about it around me. Uh, but after a year, I got to know them. Uh, Randy Frost, who is uh, really the, the person that started the, the field of hoarding disorder research, he got funding from Smith College to see if a self-help group could help people with clutter. And I volunteered to run all of them. So in 2009, I started running what we would eventually call the Buried and Treasures Workshop, developing the facilitator's guide as I went and really getting a crash course in helping myself so that I could then uh, articulate those things and, and help other people. So uh, that's how I got involved. That's really cool. You know, I think of the founder of Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. She eventually came out as somebody who has a borderline um, personality disorder diagnosis. But at the time when she, you know, founded the model, it was not something that, you know, you could talk about. Um, and it's these kind of more stigmatized conditions, right, that people who are leading the way in terms of supports haven't always felt like they could disclose. Totally. Um, but I've seen firsthand how your work has really transformed the way that people think about something that has a lot of negative associations. And that's led to the creation of a network of local supports that people are more likely to access. 
Can you talk a little bit about your efforts to counter negativity and promote inclusion? Yeah, I think one of the most important sort of building blocks of all the work we do, the kind of people we are and what we do is language. And the term hoarder is where I start and just kind of looking at the the negative uh, messaging that has come from media about people called hoarders, right? And so it's because of those negative images and negative associations that there is so much stigma about hoarding and about the word hoarder. So I kind of see that as the first step towards acknowledging that there's a different way to talk about this challenge for yourself or for other people. And so that's the first sort of challenge that I've addressed. And what I've seen happen is once people start to think bigger about this and realize that the the challenges go much deeper, it's not just like loving your stuff so much that you don't care about other people, uh, but that there's some deep-rooted mental health challenges here. It helps to raise, I think, the level of compassion and also not just being able to say we can get better, but how, right? So in developing Buried in Treasures workshop and, and Wrap for Reducing Clutter, we've developed evidence-based tools that can help people. So it was fascinating because when I joined the Massachusetts Statewide Steering Committee on Hoarding Disorder, there was a survey done early on and municipalities were asked, if you had extra funds to help with hoarding disorder, what would you use it for? And the top answer was forced cleanouts. Just a few years later, when that same question was asked, uh, folks said they would use it for self-help groups because they saw it as a more sustainable, accessible, and financially feasible way to um, help people manage their, their over-acquiring and saving. So, you know, you prove by doing. And so I've tried to set that example, but also just gaining momentum through that common spirit of wanting to help, but not knowing how. So, you know, I definitely haven't done it alone. There's been a lot of people involved. You mentioned the Buried in Treasures workshop. Can you just share a little bit more about that? Totally. So the Buried in Treasures workshop is a 16-week self-help group for people who want to work on their over-finding and keeping. That's the way I refer to it personally is as a finder-keeper in recovery because I was finding too much stuff and keeping it. So uh, for people that are ready to work on that, um, this is a program based on cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's been developed so that lay people like myself who are not clinicians can actually utilize these skills and approaches. So when you've got, you know, 10 peers coming together with educated facilitators for a couple hours a week uh, and discussing why it's difficult, you know, addressing mindful acquiring, increasing sorting and discarding and maintaining the progress, that's the work that's done above the surface. And that's a lot of what we focus on, but the underlying challenges and the goals relate back to really what what really matters to a person, not just like clearing a space, but what you're going to use it for. What's it going to matter? Who's it going to matter to? And, you know, I mentioned Becca before, because it's really important not to forget myself and a lot of other people. We don't live alone and the clutter we create does impact other people. So uh, I think it's always important to keep in mind that like, even though a mental health challenge might not be our fault, it's still our responsibility to help create and maintain a safe and and healthy environment for everybody involved. You know, that's something that I think I always want to touch upon. And for a lot of people and a lot of parents, 
their motivation for, for working on this is to have a safer, healthier home for their kids to grow up in. There's a misperception that people either don't know or recognize that they have a problem or that parents like their stuff more than their kids. Not necessarily the case. A lot of people really do want to change. Uh, they just haven't known how and they haven't had the support. So do you mind sharing, you know, in terms of your own recovery, what what sort of things have you saved and um, what has that process been like for you of, of reducing? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I know that the first article that came out about my work, so being associated with Randy Frost, you know, maybe media would ask him, do you know anybody that's in recovery that would talk about it? So I said, I'll talk about it. And the very first article that came out was, Porter buries himself in Atari and bobbleheads. So I was essentially willing to talk about the things that I had that represented like the part of my identity that I felt I needed to be, um, I don't know, accepted or appreciated. And I didn't talk about the other stuff. I didn't talk about the things that made less sense. I talked about the collectibles. And I realized over time, that's not what I had a hard time letting go of, really. You've heard the expression spark joy. I talked about the things that sparked joy, but it turns out those weren't the things that were hardest to let go of. The things that were hardest to let go of were actually things that sparked dread or upset or guilt or shame. And if you sort of peered back that veneer of cool stuff, you started coming across unpaid bills. You came across papers from elementary school with Fs on them. You came across letters that I didn't send to relatives, thank you letters that I didn't send before they passed away. You come across reminder after reminder after reminder of things that were unresolved and realizing that when I looked at the, the clutter and what seemed like random chaos, that it was just a disorganized pile of reminders of things that I hadn't dealt with yet. And that was a big sort of realization for me to make that these things did make sense to me. And I had that realization just before the pandemic, just before the lockdown, uh, when I realized, wow, the things I've been saving, like Space Shuttle Challenger collectibles and World Trade Center, and then I dig deeper and I find like the Gulf War and, and all of these things, I'm like, wow, you know, these are things that I tried to like say, like I was tough enough for them not to bother me, but they did. And I don't need to save those things once I address it. And I don't need to save those things when they come my way in the future. And realizing that just before the pandemic meant that I wasn't saving every artifact from the pandemic and acquiring Dr. Fauci bobbleheads and, and things like that because I didn't need them, because I was sort of addressing it in real time. So cracking that kind of code meant not only being able to let things go, but not acquiring and saving new things that down the line, I was just going to be struggling with again. But I also saved every poem I ever wrote, every drawing, thousands of hours of audio and video archives. And a lot of those things are really special and meaningful. But then I dig a little deeper and realize that a lot of the messages in those, even when they're like happy, um, there's still some self-doubt, there's some fear in there. So I came to understand that, yeah, there's more to work on <laughs> for myself. And I have tremendous amount of archives just from my experiences as a peer specialist, as a peer in the system, 
starting before I was a peer specialist, just regular mental health worker. And the, the first poem I came across was from the very first overnight shift I worked alone, New Year's 2001, very first one, very first night, very first stressor that I experienced, and I wrote about it. I've just spoken with a man who will toast the new year with a glass of ginger ale. I shall do the same because I said I would. It was 3.30 a.m. when the phone rang. That's the first time I've had to deal with something like that. He said he couldn't sleep, and I said I couldn't blame him. I suggested music and watching the snow. We've gotten seven inches here in Northampton. Must have been 12 inches on the ground in Southampton already when I left. It's been coming down for 15 hours now. That's nothing compared to a man on the wagon. And yeah, that was my very first overnight solo shift. This call comes in and what do I know? What am I supposed to say? There's a couple things in there I don't say anymore. I don't make suggestions of what people should do to feel better. I don't tell people to play music and watch the snow. They might have some really terrible associations with those things. But I was there for them. And maybe that was the most important thing. But nobody ever said that it's not really what you say. Sometimes it's what you don't say that makes a difference. So I had to fill that silence that night. Because I thought that's what mental health counselors do. But, you know, over time, I learned that it's better to have conversations before you're in that stressful situation about what you could do so that you can take your own best advice uh, and not just somebody else's best assumptions. And so I have that and uh, several others. Uh, but as I go through, I see these things and I'm like, what is it about those things that represent frustration or upset? And I just, I look back and there's just this stream, this thread that runs through it all, just wondering if I could have done better. You know, what did I learn? And then I look at these things and I kind of fill in the blanks with what I know now, what would I have done then? And when I'm sort of coaching or mentoring or training around these topics, I try to catch people up with what I've learned from the experience so that they don't necessarily have to start where I was 23 years ago. Hmm. So I hear you showing how, you know, that kind of work is a much more meaningful process than than rent a clean out, <laughs> a forced clean out, and has a longer impact because of its kind of um, focus on not acquiring in the future as well. But then I also hear you saying how um, recovery is is a fluid process, right? It's not just this magical line <laughs> that people cross over. Um I know from our conversations that um, self-expression um, and creativity has been a part of your recovery um, as well. Can you share a little bit more about that? Or is there any music or poetry you'd like to share? There's a certain point, I think, where words fail us. And we all have, hopefully, a way to express ourselves when that happens. And for me, I find music to be almost like a universal language. But it's a language that I stopped speaking in in uh when i was 18 so i played from 7 to 18 classical music and i auditioned for an orchestra at 18 and was told that i would have to work really hard uh, i could be accepted but i'd have to work really hard to get in and i quit because i wanted to play music you know i didn't want to work music so i quit right then and there and a couple years later 
a friend played a track uh, by Frank Zappa called Willie the Pimp on the album Hot Rats. And there's an intro riff by Don Sugarcane Harris to that song. I heard that and I walked into a used instrument store. I bought a violin and I started wailing on it and making noise. Instead of Mozart and Beethoven, I was making noise, joyful noise, angry noise, all kinds of noise, and just like letting it rip. And um, that became such a, a release, a way to express myself. It was almost like more like a Jackson Pollock approach to, to music than a, a classical performer, very abstract, very all over the place. But if you stand back far enough, it makes sense, I think. And so, you know, since then, uh, I bought an electric violin and started playing everything from thrash metal to uh, quiet contemplative stuff in nursing homes and Alzheimer's wards. So there's a sort of, I think, a song for every mood. I make it all up. It's all in improvised. Played with a lot of bands, but it's really about being able to express myself with it. And that's one, one thing that I, I hope other people have that outlet. So music, it really exploded for me after 9-11 uh, because everything I was drawing and writing looked like the World Trade Center. I could not get away from that imagery. And that's when I really started playing violin a lot more because it was non-verbal, non-visual, but I could get out those feelings without people trying to attach it to something specific. Anything you'd like to share in terms of your drawings or, or writing? Sure. You know, it's it's interesting. You mentioned about like forced clean out. So the very first task I had when I was uh, hired was to help with a forced clean out. I had no idea. I, I just thought I was doing an awesome job because like the apartment was like spotless and he wasn't going to be evicted and everybody's like giving high fives and great job. And I felt on top of the world. Um, you talk about you know, if I knew then what I know now, that's very, very challenging. But I, I came across uh, just a drawing, a simple sort of cartoony drawing that I had done about that experience. And it's just, and I'll, I'll share it with you so people can see it online, but just a little, these little circles, very basic line drawings. And it just says, where'd they put all my stuff? And that question killed me. You know, because down the line, we we remained in touch and I, I kept working with him once I actually really started to specialize in this um, and he was still getting supports there. I was like, I want to continue working with him. And they said, you better clean up and you're not going to go on the next trip to Walmart if you don't clean your room. And he's saying, I can't live without these things. And he understood that about himself before I understood that about myself. But, um, you know, and that's where the mutuality came in was in recognizing that maybe in someone else before myself. Um, but that's just one example as I'm going through these random stacks. And um, yeah, I mean, permission to swear, then there's just a little doodle of me just going, fuck. And it's just like, what else can I say? What else can I say about that feeling, you know? Um, and that frustration, and I took that piece of paper and I put it in the pile and the pile got covered with piles and then I came across it. And when I knew we'd be talking about peer specialist work and clutter, uh, that was a pretty natural intersection of the two. But this poem that I wrote is from April 14th, 2002. And at the top, it just says, I am so tired. 
Having worked 31 out of the last 36 hours, I fall flat on my face, standing up, or rather sitting down, and this was a very challenging weekend. Millions of variables, resolutions, compromising my defenses, which were often perceived as offenses. Experience has taught me that it's easier to come back, having withheld a comeback, because Sundays follow Saturdays. Tempers follow temperament. Sometimes logic falls short, so we move the goal closer. We shift the wind, we defy the refs, we play to a tie. Nobody loses when everyone wins. The winners take nothing but give it all back. The offense fights for the home team, and the crowd of four go wild in the flowers growing on the field. It's not just a game. It's not a game at all. It's life, everyone's life. And I'm tired, having worked hard without sweating. I go home calm, having one for both sides. That was, uh, you know, after a 31-hour shift because it, it nobody could cover. So I just kept working shifts. And that's, uh, that's what happens in, in community mental health sometimes. And you go above and beyond probably to places that you shouldn't because you feel like if you don't, no one else will. And you put yourself in situations, physical, emotional, that are precarious. And you look back and you go, I would never do that again. Never do that again. But hopefully our instincts can guide us through and things work out okay. I've been speaking with Lee Schuer, co-founder of Mutual Support Consulting. His website, mutual-support.com features more information about his programs, workshops, services, and other resources on peer support, collecting, and much more. Thank you, Lee, for sharing your insight and experience and how you're using it to help others. We're so grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast from the Massachusetts Association for mental health and Kiva centers. You can find more information about the podcast and past episodes at mamh.org. If you have questions or comments, or would like to share your experience, email us at info at mamh.org or find us on social media. Next time on I Live This, a conversation about body image, culture, eating disorders, and anxiety. The conversation will be led by Allison Sabine, Master of Social Work candidate and MAMH intern, and Yvonne Castaneda, Director of Community-Based Initiatives at Boston College School of Social Work and author of Pork Belly Tacos with a Side of Anxiety. Thanks for listening.